Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. We're in a new year and preparing for a new administration. Getting a handle on where the media stands is more important than ever. Today I'm joined by journalist and podcast host Tara Palmieri. This is episode 10. From covering the Trump White House to reporting on Jeffrey Epstein to her next move in the media world for Political Playbook, we start with what Tara learned digging up the gossip in the New York City media scene for page six. So I want to start with uh, going a little bit back into history. Uh, 10, 11 years ago, I think you've, you and I first met when you were writing for page six, and yes. uh, w- which was an interesting, I think, you know, training ground in a lot of ways for, for uh-huh. the, the, the various uh, work you've, you've done since. Uh, in a uh, Esquire piece last year, you described it as you stay up all night because everyone says that everything goes down after hours. Everyone says at the end of the night is when you see people acting up and that's when the real drama happens. Uh, let me ask you about your time at page six to, to start this sure. off. What, what did you learn from that? What, what, what stands out to you from your time there? Honestly, like, I think the thing about page six is that it really teaches you to be a like scrappy reporter. You know, it teaches you that every day at page six, you had to come in with three leads, you know, three stories that you could dig into that day. And that might mean you had to go out the night before and you covered, you know, the biggest premiere party in town. And maybe you saw a bunch of actors canoodling or there was some dust up between Harvey Weinstein and XYZ. You know what I mean? Like you had to, and I probably shouldn't drop Harvey Weinstein's name in the beginning of this, but you know, when I, when it was during my time at page six, he was the big deal. You know, um, I didn't know that he was a sexual predator, but I knew that he was a jerk um, and that he abused his his staff. And he once like tried to threaten me to not write a piece about one of his starlets going nuts on me at a party, um, Michelle Williams. But oh, you know, um, but the point is like it just teaches you like you got to get the scoop, you have to get the story. And you and I kind of came up around the same time in journalism when like blogging was the thing, right? right. And like part of being a blog a blogger was you took other people's work, right? And you kind of like expanded on it or wrote it in your own style. But then there were like a few bloggers like yourself um, and that essentially did what we did at page six. Like we, they looked for scoops, like they looked for nuggets and they broke those little pieces of stories, little items every single day on their blogs, right? And that's how media became so popular. But that was really the uh, recipe for page six. Like we did items, we broke off little pieces of news. The juicier, the better, the more human the angle, the better, um, yeah. you know, the talkers. And like, that's like, in some ways, I feel like blogging is an evolution of page six. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, and I think on some level also, one of the things that really distinguished page six and, and you know, to a, a lesser extent, I would say media, but there, there is the, the, there are these sort of unwritten rules in journalism, um, particularly, you know, in the way that I would imagine you've pissed off a lot of like publicists at, at various networks, because, you know, th- there is sort of a cadence to things. Okay, we're going to break this news with this person, and then this is going to happen here. But but you would sort of work to disrupt that. And, and I would imagine, you know, you left a lot of people sort of annoyed occasionally, whether it was, you know, uh, celebrity publicists or network publicists. Yeah. Um, but that was uh, because it was sort of disrupting the status quo with the way journalism right. was supposed to work. Right, exactly. I mean, I've always liked being a disruptor. I, you know, that's just who I am. Um, I don't know, life's too short to play by the rules. Um, (laughs) But, you know, and it's also just like, this is journalism. Like, sure, maybe not everything I wrote was totally consequential when I was at, um, at 
page six, but like I wanted to leave that job knowing I wouldn't have it for the rest of my life. You know, being known as a, a solid reporter at the end of the day, like I wanted to leave, um, I don't, I wanted to make it clear that like I was ready to get the scoop. I wanted to get the story. I was a competitor. I wasn't just interested in sightings and celebrity gossip that like I, I wanted to cover power. Right. I wanted to cover the important people. And um, I had to do well at that job to eventually move off of it. Like that's sort of how it works at um, the New York Post. Like you want to move on to the news desk, you got to show people you got chops, right? You can't just be the party girl. Um, so that's what I did. I mean, I was 22 years old when I wrote for page six. It's crazy, right? Yeah. I'm 33 now. <laughs> um, but I still have, there's still people who are angry at me for things that I wrote back then, which is so funny. Cause it's like the stuff that I wrote was actually accurate. I'm like, yeah, you did lose your job. Like, right. you know what I mean? <laughs> like your show is, your show did get cut back. Um, and, or, you know, or yeah, you were a hothead and you did scream at everyone. I mean, remember the Spitzer, Elliot Spitzer, Kathleen Parker drama, like at CNN. Two, yeah. Were you working at CNN at the time then? Uh, no, I wasn't at the time, but then I would later come to CNN um, as that show was kind of winding down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure you heard that all that stuff was true. They right. were bickering. They were, it was crazy. Um, and yeah, did the CNN PR people love it? No. But, you know, I ended up actually working for CNN as a as an analyst um, at, when I was a White House correspondent for Politico, because at the end of the day, you know, we are still journalists. They wanted people who are getting scoops on the Trump administration. And that's what I was doing. I'm yeah. sure there were some people in New York who were like, what? This girl <laughs> drove me nuts. But, uh, you know, I, I would hire someone who drove me nuts if yeah. I was an editor looking for some good journalists. Right. Is it true? I mean, that's really the the, the, the key standard that it should be. Exactly. I think, well, I, I want to, we're going to talk a lot about power and Trump. Um, but I, but let me ask you one thing, because I, I, uh, I saw you tweeting recently about Alec Baldwin, who I believe uh, has blocked you on Twitter and uh, he's blocked me as well. Um, but uh, oh, congratulations. I, I, I wonder if that was a page six thing. And, and, and I guess, you know, it's sort of representative. I, I wonder if you have any sort of good stories, whether it was about Alec or anyone else, about sort of the ego of people in the media spotlight, um, particularly in that kind of New York scene. Yeah, I mean, the whole, like the, the fun of covering page six is the are the egos, the personalities, the larger than life people, because they're so thin skinned and it becomes more of a dialogue uh, when you write about them because there's always likely to be a reaction. Like Keith Olbermann, remember how many times did he name everyone he hated as the worst person of the day? Or what was it? Was that what Worst person in the world. Yeah. Yeah, worst person in the world. I think he said that I was going to end my journalism career drawing on the bottom of men's bathroom stalls. <laughs> and I said that his executive producer like quit in a huff because she couldn't stand working for him anymore. Which is true. Um, yeah, exactly. So it's like, you know, the, the truth hurts, especially when there are people who are so used to, you know, controlling the narrative. Um, and it was always a struggle with the, with the powerful, right? Like you're basically a little gnat to them. You're kind of like, you're some like punk 22 year old, 23 year old, whatever, um, has too much power for their own good. Cause you have this column in a, you know, one of the most read newspapers in Manhattan. Um, you have a, way too much power. They don't like that. Right. Cause like, they have suddenly have to behave around you because anything that they say could end up in the New York Post the next day, embarrassing them and or just right. ruining whatever thing they're whatever they're scheming or whatever you spotted them doing that they didn't want out there. <laughs> um, well, yeah, and the problem with it, honestly, is there's some sort of like sadomasochistic relationship that they have with Page Six because they all love reading it. They all love oh, kind of reading of about themselves, even even if it's like not the greatest story, but they're you know obsessed with the the minutia of the industry as well. Oh, totally. And I would always tell people when they were angry at me, I'd be like, okay, you know, I'm happy to talk to you whenever you want. Um, like I'll hear out your case or et cetera. And like, ultimately I was trying to win them over to be sources. Right. 
<laughs> and, you know, some of the people that I reported on their firings before they wanted it out and probably not in the spin that they wanted have ended up becoming my, some of my best sources and some of my good friends, like people who get it, like get the game. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I always say, like, I know who the good, I wouldn't say gossips, but like the good reporters who cover media. Um, and I, you know, you and I are part of the media and like, you know who they are and like, not just, and you have to be aware, like those people have power over your career and like, I would never want to lie to them and I wouldn't like treat them like they're, you know, not like not consequential, but a lot of these really big headed, you know, especially TV stars, um, you know, big time executives, they just kind of were like, you know what, you're you're not with my time. I don't want to deal with you. Right. Yeah. Um, there were a million of us out there. I don't know that there are as many, um, but, and you know, we're all looking to break off a piece of the news. Um, I just think some people just are used to being able to tell people what to do. And when you show them that you can't be controlled, it drives them nuts. Right. I mean, look at Alec Baldwin. I literally walked up to him on the side of the road. I'm 26 years old. It's a Sunday. Okay. Uh, believe me, I did not want to wake up on Sunday morning and have to go to the West Village to ring, uh, not to ring, to stake out Alec Baldwin's house in the cold, <laughs> right? Um, which is what I did. I had just been out with my friends the night before. It was the worst part of being a daily news reporter was having to work on Sundays for the Monday paper, right? Right. Um, and so I'm there. I'm just like, what is going on? Why am I here? And half awake, and I'm just like, I had my little recorder, and I walked up to him, and I said, because he's walking his dogs. That's how we got him, because we were staking him out. And I walk up to him, I go, hi, Mr. Baldwin. I'm with the New York Post. Do you have any comment on the fact that your wife was... She was sued for teaching dangerous poses in her yoga class. It was like something not that consequential, frankly. I mean, the story was in the paper and we didn't have a response from him. So that was what we were going to do was go there the next morning to get the response. I mean, clearly my editors knew that just asking him for a response would be be a provocation. Oh, yeah. You know, but we didn't think it was going to be the type of provocation where he grabs me, tells me, I hope you choke to death, um, then turns on the cameraman who's with me slams him up against the door, tries a uh, car door, tries to fight him. I didn't hear this personally, but apparently he called him some racial slurs. Um, he's oh African-American. God. Yeah, yeah. And it ended up like being a police, like it ended up going to the police department and NYPD. And they asked me like, do you want to press charges against Baldwin? And I was like, no, I'm a journalist. Like, that's not what we do, right? Whatever, you get a little roughed up. Like, it is what it is. Um, and yeah, so the next day in the New York Post, what's, what's the story, you know? That- rage and like there was something it was funny like i just can't remember but it was crazy yeah something about his rage uh i actually have it i I was i was going my parents are moving so i was going through my closet and i found it the other day and i was just like laughing at it like look at this ridiculous outfit i'm wearing i'm wearing a beret okay (laughs) like (laughs) and a puffy coat with fur like you were were not thinking that i was gonna get photographed oh you were in the picture of it on the yeah he's grabbing me and i'm just like (laughs) i have my little like I'm shaking in the cold with my little, um, my little recorder, you know, like, you know, remember those little, like, like those kind of recorders that people use when they're running around the halls of Congress. Yeah. Like, like the little tape. Yeah. yeah. Cause like that was really before phones had good recorders in them. Right. That was before cell phones were like, you know, now we just use our cell phones to record people. But, um, yeah, the good old days. I know. Well, and it's so funny. He called me, he, t- he said on Howard Stern the next day. And I think on his Twitter that I was Rupert Murdoch's niece. And I remember thinking <laughs> to myself, I was Rupert Murdoch's niece. I wouldn't be out in the freezing cold outside of your house. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's sort of. Uh, I, I 
I want to talk later about covering the Trump White House, but something about, uh, you know, Jim Acosta's book title about the most dangerous time to be a, a journalist. And, and there's Alec Baldwin yeah. attacking you a, a few years earlier. But uh, let me ask you this, because you, you did then, as you mentioned, move on and, and report on a variety of other, uh, you know, beats at the New York Post, um, you know, really for, for several years after leaving page six uh, in a news capacity. And I, I guess I'm curious to, to know what you think about uh, last year uh, with the Hunter Biden story. The New York Post was banned from their Twitter account for several weeks. Uh, the link to that was, uh, you know, to, to the original Hunter Biden laptop story was was shut down by Twitter. And there was some pushback for it. They eventually, you know, went back on that. But I, I, I was thinking about this, like Maggie. Twitter H- went back on it, right? Yeah, on, on the link. Uh, and it yeah. took, a, took a week plus for the New York Post to get there account back. But, you know, this was not some like gateway pundit or even Breitbart that was publishing this, this was, you know, New York Post. And I, I remember Maggie Haberman, who's now at the New York Times, but was at the New York Post uh, previously in her career, happened to like tweet the link to the story and was like trending as MAGA Haberman for daring to tweet a link to the New York Post. I, I'm curious what you think about that as someone who who went through the ranks at the Post. Uh, what do you think about that story? I, I felt like they had the right to publish it. Like they, I, they would have published it when I was there. Um, they, the, the, the thinking was that it was stolen from the Russians, right? That the information was stolen. But it turned out that Hunter Biden left his laptop with some guy in Delaware. Like <laughs> he made a sloppy move. I yeah. don't know why that story was banned. Um, yeah, I, I that that wasn't. Listen, the New York Post has gotten slammed for much worse than that. Um, that was not, to me, I don't think that that was unethical for them to run that. But that's my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, you left... Uh, and it turned out to be right, right? Like, it was... Well, it seems to be. And that, that's what's that's what's interesting. Is I, I guess, you know, in theory, and I, and I had a whole back and forth with uh, with someone over the weekend, actually, about the story, because some, I, I don't know, retweeted something about it in, in relation to the fact that Donald Trump is now obviously permanently banned from Twitter and comparisons to that. And uh, I, you know, the truth of the matter is we don't really know the exact sourcing. I mean, who, who knows? Maybe they got it in shady ways. We, I, I don't really know. And, but but that, you could say that same thing about lots of stories. You could say that, oh, that totally. same thing about stories. The that, dossier? Right. I mean, right. <laughs> right? Like the Steele like, dossier, a lot of the exactly. CNN, you know, reporting on on the, the Russia, you know, investigation and Mueller and things that obviously came out mm-hmm. not true. And and I, I would argue none of that should be, you know, banned. I, I think, you know, none of it is is worthy of like, you know, having the the tech, you know, crackdown uh, on this. It's, yeah. you know, people can choose to read it or not read it or, or say, you know, this is Russian information if they want to, or disinformation. Um, but yeah, but, but no, the, I know. yeah, it creates a real impression of a bias when you take down a story that's like, you're, you're, you're doubting the, the sourcing when it's not even coming from Hunter Biden himself. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it was like, the, I think it was the Biden campaign that went on they didn't even go on the record to refute it no no to this day they have not refuted the exactly. the you know the legitimacy of it and i think that you know it when when twitter goes to that overreaction it it honestly makes it more of a story i feel like you know it it makes yeah. it more oh, well, why are they going and doing that and uh you know what is what are they trying to, to hide i think that's the, the impression people have from from something like that when, when it's the new york right. post i mean right i mean they've always been that they've always done that kind of stuff and also think about this the new york post for, for the New York Post, that's a huge story. You know, this isn't, they're not the go-to uh, for campaigns to drop stories, believe me. Right. Um, you know, I did cover politics for the New York Post for a little bit of time. I mean, the, I covered the mayor too, which I think is a, is a, um, 
like a very important beat at the New York Post, but covering national politics can be really tricky there because, uh, you know, it's just, it doesn't have that same influence, you know, as like the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal right. um, in terms of political campaigns nation- on the national level. But you know what? At the end of the day, in the New York Post, they were the ones, uh, I think one of their covers told Trump to just accept the results of the election. And like, they've, they've been pretty hard on him after this insurrection as well. I mean, you have to understand that, like, and I think you do understand this. We all know this, that the New York Post is owned by a very powerful man who uses it, right? Like, yeah. So it's... Rupert Murdoch. Exactly, yeah. Rupert Murdoch. Um, so, you know, I don't know that personally that he calls up and directs how, um, you know, the coverage is, is, is done. But, you know, like, it's just, you just get that feeling. Like, p- people know what the boss would want. Yeah. You know, so, um, and I, I'm sure he chooses editors that have his sensibility in mind, you know? Um, so, but it, it, it can sometimes clash with Fox news. Um, it can clash with the Republican party. I always look at it as a window into Rupert Murdoch's mind, you know? Yeah. Um, so maybe we're wrong, but I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Why else do really wealthy people buy newspapers? Later, we'll dig into Palmieri's coverage of Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell and what those stories say about the state of the media. But now, her move to covering politics in Europe and then covering the Trump White House. Let's move to uh, the next thing you did, which I believe was at Politico, uh, working uh, for Politico Europe in Brussels. And and I'm curious about that. Before we go to you coming back to the U.S., tell me about covering politics in in the EU. Uh, How was that different from your your previous U.S. gigs? It's just... I I really had the time of my life. I mean, I never had never even visited Belgium and I moved within two weeks of getting the job with four suitcases and lived in a hotel until I got an apartment and a phone line. And it was just like fish out of water. They are not used to that rough and tumble kind of style of reporting um, that we have in the United States, especially me coming from a tabloid. Um, And there's just like a sense of decorum. Uh, I think like the French press sort of has a pretty heavy hand over the way that the coverage is um, over the coverage of Europe. Um, it's kind of more of like an analytical style, not so much scoop based. It's always a hundred thousand foot view. You always really um, hear the journalist's thoughts, almost like a column. It's often meandering. <laughs> often sometimes I read it and I'm like, I don't know what it is. It could just be that I, I don't speak French, but I didn't speak French when I moved there. And it's just Sort of, it was just like, this is the way we cover sleepy Brussels. This is what we do. You know, we use these really crazy long words, like here's a communique, which is a memo, <laughs> you know, like we are going to hold a good. plenary, which is a meeting um, or a summit. You know, we are, go- like, it was just all, all of the words were Frenchified. So if it was an English word, it was a kind of like a French version of the word. Um, and I'm just kind of like this scrappy girl from the New York Post. They told me to come in here and mix it up. <laughs> And I started writing this kind of like, kind of like a page six gossip column in Playbook. It, it was called Playbook Plus. It was in print. And it ended up being the most popular page in the print newspaper wow. because I was following like the power plays, the storylines, like giving it kind of that house of cards feel, like the mystery, the intrigue. I was being mischievous. And it turns out that uh, the Europeans loved that as well. And I started getting um, tips in the mail, like, people sending me things old school, wanting to meet up in weird places. Like they were kind of in on it. And I ended up um, launching hearings into this commissioner who was uh, using her aides as like waiters and uh, 
assistants <laughs> and smoking in her office and just like abusing the roles of the drivers and all the other things. Like I broke the story that the EU wanted to spend million, $7 million on new uniforms for their drivers. Like the, these are just like par- parliamentarians, like the, 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 um, members of the parliament that had their own drivers. Could you imagine if congressmen had their own drivers right. and we spent 7 million American dollars <laughs> to give them new uniforms? Like, so, you know, and, and then, so I became a bit of a darling among the Brexit crowd because I was sort of exposing the hypocrisy and the crazy inside of, um, inside of Europe. But I was like, I don't care. Like I'm not a Brit. I'm not for or against Europe. You yeah. know, I am actually a Polish citizen. I was there living on a Polish passport. Um, My mom's from Poland. And that was how I was able to move so quickly without needing a visa or anything. And so, yeah, would Brexit have actually hurt me in terms of wanting to live in the UK? Yeah. Would it give me less options? Not to mention that there was like this insane xenophobia against Polish people. Um, You know, like they would make jokes like, oh, the Polish plumber, plumber, the Polish Polish, uh, barista, (laughs) uh, you know, they were attacking Czechs and Poles and Eastern Europeans out in in the UK for taking their jobs. Hmm. Um, and it was really crazy because like at one point the, um, the the daily telegraph interviewed me to, um, to write about Brexit for them, an American poll writing for one of the biggest Tory newspapers in the UK would have been just like hilarious. And maybe it was a stunt who knows, but I was getting a lot of scoops and the way that I was getting it was kind of using those skills that we have in the U S um, of like cultivating sources, but going like thinking of the motivations of the sources, like, you know, I would think to myself, like, who would want to leak on the British, right? Like, you're never going to get David Cameron to call you up and give you scoops. Maybe you will if you're like, you know, the editor of the Daily Mail or the editor of the Sunday Times. But I'm just some girl at Politico. But who would want what's going on in those meetings, those seven people meetings to get out, right? And then those are the people you call. And I think it was hard for British journalists who wrote in English and I wrote in English as well. And that was why some of my story, that's why my stories were able to kind of penetrate and get picked up in the British press. Um, because I would get, I would get information from sources that didn't speak English. Right. I didn't want to speak to British reporters because they were kind of tired of Brexit talk and all this kind of slagging off of their, uh, institutions that they truly believed in. Yeah. So it was sort of a, it was good to be a fish out of water. You know, it's always, I look at Jonathan Swan a little bit coming from Australia and playing in our pool, um, and he's he's a killer it, yeah. reporter. Yeah. Total killer reporter. But I think at the end of the day, people just think like, He's not really American, so like he doesn't have a stake in the game. <laughs> you could talk right? to him. Yeah. Well, yeah. And also, I, I do wonder, like the sensibility you're talking about with page six reminds me a little of like the British tabloid wars oh, that, that totally. go on, which which maybe is a little different than the sensibilities of like the the typical EU reporter um, in Brussels. So so you know that probably you know shakes things up a little bit there. Totally. I mean, we. I also wanted policy scoops, which I don't think they care about as much. I remember the Daily Mail or the Sun had some scoop about like two diplomats hooking up during one of the summits on Brexit. You know, like that was what they were into. And while I would probably have, if I got that scoop, I probably would have run it. I was really trying to get, you know, documents and uh, memos and break news on like the actual negotiations. Um, And then my column, I would talk about the power plays and who was up for what, who wanted the presidency of the parliament and who, you know, like, and you know, and suddenly, like, like as you know, once you start reporting, people will come to you. They see that you're you're actually doing things. Um, right. And so, yeah, that was it. Was so fun. I had just such a good time. Now I have friends all over the world, and I under I don't I never claim to quite understand the EU. I don't think even the people that are elected 
um, to be leaders there understand it because it is just so confusing. But I remember reading like almost like an EU for dummies book and my, my boss at the time, Carrie Budoff Brown caught me. She's the editor in chief, uh, like in some, in some laundromat doing my laundry while reading about (laughs) the EU. And she was like, really? Carrie, do you even get it? She said, nah. (laughs) Journalism as performance. That's next. But first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that form the greatest country on the planet. The First is free. No subscription, no credit cards, no trials, no censorship. Watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. More with Tara in a minute, but first, an example of media extremism that's not helping lower the temperature in America. One piece that stuck out to me over the last few weeks is a blog by Mother Jones's Kevin Drum. Initially, it was titled The Top 10 Lunatics of 2020. Featuring an image of Heath Ledger's Joker, the piece runs through some of the usual characters you'd expect, like Donald Trump or Sidney Powell. Also on here, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. Why is she a, quote, lunatic? The nakedly ambitious governor of South Dakota, facing a skyrocketing outbreak of COVID-19, refused to even encourage residents to wear masks and socially distance, he writes, which isn't really true. She's just not mandating it. Anyway, go to the blog now. It says the top nine lunatics, missing number 10. That's because number seven on the list was originally Tara Reid, the woman who accused Joe Biden of sexual assault. Drum described it as a, quote, fantasy made up by a habitual con artist. How does the phrase go? Believe women or put them on a year-end list of lunatics? The post now contains an editor's note. This post has been edited to remove mention of Tara Reid, whose claims have been cast into doubt by independent reporting, but are of a different nature than the others in this list. Yeah, a little different, I think. Perhaps instead of calling people lunatics, the media can help to practice what they preach and lower the temperature. Now, back to Tara Palmieri. You ended up coming back to D.C., um, working at Politico, still contributor to CNN, later uh, a White House correspondent with ABC. Um, and, and I want to ask you about kind of the, the Trump era of journalism, which you covered uh, at, you know, specifically after he was elected in that kind of shock election in November 2016. Um, it's now coming to an end. Uh, we'll, we'll get the Biden era. Um, and I, I guess first, looking back on it and these these four years, I, I'm curious as you as you look at your time in the White House, but also outside of it in the last couple of years, what do you think will, will be the lasting imprint on the media in the way that they covered this, this administration? It's hmm, a really good question. I hope that it changed the kind of like sheep mentality of covering the White House, right? I mean, it was super leaky. Hmm. It was actually, no one will say this, but it was pretty easy (laughs) compared to a lot of other institutions that I've tried to cover. When you have a lot of dissent, it creates leaking. It was easy to cover stories. It was easy to break news um, in the White House. No one will admit it, but, and it kind of created this whole new crop of stars, right? In the White House briefing room. Um, And it it really rewarded the scrappy. It rewarded the people who broke news. Um, And, you know, it, it was, there were moments where I was like, oh God, some of these people, I thought they only wanted to, they only asked questions to, for their YouTube moment, right? Like, right. and they I don't think they actually cared about the answer. I think it turned the temperature up a little bit. Um, and in that case, you know, I get it. If you, I guess in television news, you need that, right? And you want to be featured on all the other shows. Um, 
I actually, because I had such a rough relationship with Spicer and he would never call on me, I stopped going to the briefings um, when I was um, working for Politico because I would just be on the phone with my sources during that time and getting better stories. Right. Right. Well, you know, even, like that was, yeah, I mean, it was, it was leaky, but it also like, I, I think this is one of the, the underrated things is, is especially with what the administration that's about to come in, which seems very disinterested in having conversations with the press, either, either, yeah. you know, on background or even obviously publicly, it, at least so far during the transition, you know, Trump himself was fairly available. Uh, you know, I mean, it was maybe in oh, front totally. of a helicopter or something, you know, before he was going, but you know, he'll go and, and chat for a while. Now the, 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 the devil's advocate, you know, opinion here would be, well, he's just lying while he's talking about it, but he was, he made himself available. And obviously, as you're mentioning, lots of other people in the white house did as well. Oh, and absolutely. And the other thing is, uh, yeah, all the screaming about access. I mean, the guy was always ready to take a question, whether he lied or not. Um, I did think there was like a lot of faux drama created just for like, I don't think that helped the cause. Mm. I do think it's hard to cover someone who's so hostile. Um, you know, it's like, I'm a little, I've always been skeptical of TV people, even though I became one, <laughs> you know, um, they want their moment in the sun, but I don't yeah. know that there was actually any real news ever that came out of these these back and forths. It was always like Trump attacking woman again, Trump attacking minority, you know, <laughs> and it was like, OK, like this guy's a racist, sexist. We get it. You know what I mean? Like, but, yeah, I, I do think yeah. that there there were kind of two different camps of White House reporters during these last four years. And I, I know, I, I think Jim Acosta is probably the, the the poster child in my mind of the kind of resistance journalism that is not super interested in like a, a progressive agenda. It really was about Jim Acosta, you know, it was not so much yes, about, you know, exactly. um, and, and, and I, I, and then there was that, and then there were, were lots of people I would like put yourself, I'd put people like Olivia Nuzzi or, uh, you know, even some of the TV people who, who seem to, to embrace this, this, you know, craziness as a way of getting a lot of interesting stories out of it. That was not about, you know, raising one's, you know, specific personal profile. Right. Yeah. No, and th that's not to say that all the reporters were like that. I mean, I feel like it brought up a whole crop of like really hungry journalists who wanted to get those big stories. I mean, even like, I know Michael Schmidt's a star, but like he, you know, he broke so many stories on, um, impeachment on the Mueller investigation. There was just so many shenanigans. It, listen, it's not easy, but if you know a little bit about journalism and you know how to build relationships, I think you, you could, and by relationships, I mean sources, I think you could really like pillage that Trump world because there was so much dysfunction and dysfunction always breeds leakers and leakers breed and give out information. Now, as with as any reporter, you always have to think about what's the motivation of each person, right? That's yeah. coming to you. Um, and but it was so transparent, honestly. Um, it was just so transparent. And I don't know. I, I, I thought it was I thought it was a, um, an okay time for journalism. I think those those displays of uh, animosity towards the present didn't help us. Um, right. I just think that was. Do you think it was a show like, you know, Acosta's book was a dangerous time to tell the truth in America. And it's like, is it really or is it actually kind of a great time to, you know, quote unquote, tell the truth because you've, you know, gained this enormous platform and you have a book called The Dangerous Time to Tell the Truth and in America. And also people were actually watching CNN again. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Right. People were actually following the things that Acosta was saying, right? Like people were actually listening um, to us and they did care. I had friends who I never cared about 
um, cared about politics, asking me really serious questions about what was going on. Oh, tell me what's really going on. I always hear that from people and I wonder why that is. Tell me what's really going on. And I've always wanted to be that journalist who, when you read my work, you found out what was really going on, right? Right. Because I think there is a feeling that the reason people don't like trust the press is because it almost seems a little bit too dramatic, like too showy, too too much of a stage thing. Because think about it, like the politicians are staging it all, right? Like they're staging the briefing room, they're staging the movements, they're staging the access, they're staging this and that. And then we're staging with our producers, being in the right spot, screaming the right question, blah, blah, blah. Like it's just so much staging. And I just think sometimes people want to know – What's happening when things aren't being staged? Yeah. What's the conversation? Right. How do people really feel about each other? And that's what I loved about Politico because that was the platform. That is a great platform to tell people that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, what's the, 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 you know, what's going on behind this, the palace intrigue, what's going on behind the curtains. And um, it was harder to do that when I was uh, working in television because you have two minutes, you're talking to such a broad audience and you have to give them like the headlines uh, not a lot of space for any kind of original reporting. Uh, maybe a nugget that you think sums up like an anecdote or a nugget that you think sums up something going on at that time in relation to a policy or, you know, staffing changes, et cetera. They, you might think it's it makes all the sense in the world, but a producer might say, nope, it's too insidery. Right. Yeah. We don't need it. We need this. It doesn't go along with this shot that we have. Um, so yeah, it can be a bit diff- more difficult. I think the, actually the cables do a good job of, you know, giving people time to talk about the behind the scenes. And I think you saw that from people like Caitlin Collins, like she did an excellent job really showing the dysfunction of the Trump white house. Um, you know, but, and they, and she got that time, the platform, um, to do that through, you know, live standups without, without having to make a, hit a, like create a package right. for the good morning America. And she now moves to a uh, chief white house correspondent for CNN yeah. and Acosta um, moves to a uh, weekend host apparently. But, um, how about yeah. just, last thing on Trump? Um, how much interaction did you have with him from your page six days? Like, did you have a previous, he was sort of in the New York media scene, uh, quite a bit <laughs> or New York scene quite a bit back in the day also. Yeah. You know, he was friends with Richard Johnson um, he was, Richard's been sort of credited with making him through the column, this larger than life real estate agent, giving him a space. And I'm sure when he tried to sell the apprentice, having all these news clippings helped him, you know, it shows yeah. uh, to sell himself as to be the host of the apprentice. It shows that there's interest in him. Um, so Richard is longtime friends with Trump. Richard would send me, Richard, this is Richard Johnson, the editor of page six when I was there. Uh, Richard would send me to parties that Trump was at. I spoke to him a few times. If I ever wanted to, we used to call him a rent a quote. Like if someone died, we'd call Trump for a comment. Um, you know, I'd always, uh, he, he was always super friendly and helpful. Ivanka would get on the phone if you had a question about anything that they were doing. Super charming. You know, I just like Rona, his assistant was the yeah. way to get to him. I remember like he got kind of annoying to me when he was running for president in 2012 Right. He was just like so annoying, or calling all it, the yeah. time, yeah. being like wanting to have, he wanted a story in page six literally every day about his run, right? <laughs> and I think at one point, the boss, I think it was Carl Allen at the time, was kind of like, okay, enough of the Trump items, right? Um, and so we sort of just got the feeling like no more Trump items, as easy it could as it could be, right? He'll just throw some red meat at us. Um, and then I was at the RNC covering that, the Republican National Convention um, for the New York Post. And I wasn't at page six, but they wanted me to kind of write a little column from there. Um, I was just a, a general assignment reporter. And I remember Trump called me and he said, write this down. And I was like, okay. 
And uh, I was walking outside and I was not writing anything down. And he said, I just talked to uh, John McCain and he thinks I have a shot at the nomination. <laughs> and I said to him, and he's getting off, he's getting onto his private plane. And I said to him, listen, Mr. Trump, um, I didn't say listen, but I was like, Mr. Trump, you know, Mitt Romney just got the nomination. What party? Like, what is going on here? I was like, I really can't write about this anymore. Like, it's just not happening. <laughs> and uh, I could, like, you know, to have, I think it was 24, 25 at the time, like to have a 24 year old kind of be like, eh, right. enough of the bullshit. Like, I'm sure, <laughs> I wonder what he thought about that. I never heard from him again. Um, so that was kind of funny but um, and interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, we kind of, we all were sort of just like, okay, this is, it was, it was a, a gift, not a gift. I hate to say that, but like, you know, there was, there was reason to cover it. He used that time in 2012. He used the birther movement to lay the groundwork for 2016. Like a lot of politicians do, right. They float that they're going to run four years before they actually run. Um, so we weren't wrong to cover it, but it just got to the point where it was like, okay, we cannot be used for press. Yeah. Well, to the point that I think people were shocked when he ran, obviously in 2016, but also they were shocked that, you know, he got the nomination and, and later mm-hmm. went on to win. It's a, it is a, it is a crazy story. We're going to end with Palmieri's latest work on Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein and the fourth watch lightning round, six questions in a little more than 60 seconds. But first, a fun little story about the NFL, linear TV and slime. For the first time in history, the NFL broadcast a game on a kid's TV channel. As part of a recent deal with CBS for the playoffs, a game between the Saints and the Bears aired not just on CBS, but on Nickelodeon, and the entire broadcast was Nickified. There were lots of SpongeBob references, there was a teenage announcer who purposely knew very little about football, and of course, there was slime after every touchdown digitally. While the broadcast was available through the NFL's app, obviously it could be viewed in nonlinear ways, it stands out as a pitch for the value of linear television to a generation increasingly moving away from a physical TV. For, quote, TV to continue thriving, there needs to be a lot more innovation and experimentation. The broadcast on Nickelodeon was a great step along that precarious path. Were there bumps along the way? Of course. Kids got to hear an F-bomb towards the end of the game. Not ideal. But for the NFL, this was a great form of youth indoctrination and football generally raising the next generation of NFL fans. But for CBS, for any linear broadcaster, this was a savvy move that required bold thinking. The kind of thinking that's often missing from the legacy television networks. Now, back to Tara Palmieri. More recently, uh, you've had a couple podcast series, one on Jeffrey Epstein uh, and uh, and just now launched one, Power the Maxwells on Ghislaine Maxwell and her family. Um, and I want to ask about the Epstein story because it, it, it seems to connect a lot with some of these other topics that we've talked about, uh, power and influence that Epstein had even, you know, among the New York media. See, I, I always was shocked that there was this story, um, George Stephanopoulos, Katie Couric, Chelsea Handler eating dinner with, with Jeffrey Epstein at his apartment uh, after he was released right. from jail. I mean, they, they all say it was a one-time thing. They didn't really know much about him, but that just gives you an an idea of like how ingrained this guy was in the scene. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious about what, what you think of like him and the Maxwell story and the way that it wasn't really covered for so long before the floodgates obviously opened in more recent years. Okay. So I remember when I was at page six, I think that we were like, we would write about Jeffrey Epstein from time to time. This was in 2010. Um, you know, eight years before he, uh, was arrested a second time, but after he, um, after his first arrest. And yeah. it was like, we always wrote about him as a creep. I remember on that same story, 
it was like that same story was on the cover of the New York Post as the prince and the perv. No one can say that they did not know that Jeffrey Epstein was a pervert yeah. and that he had this reputation. Um, that was Peggy Siegel, that famed party planner from right. Hollywood who uh, used to work with Harvey Weinstein. Like she was the one who threw that. And all those journalists claimed that they wanted to talk to Prince Andrew because they wanted the scoop on what was going on with Kate and William's wedding that was coming up, right? Mm. Um but yeah, no, Jeffrey Epstein, like as soon as he got out of prison, he was at all the parties at David, he was at David Koch's house in the Hamptons at a money never, Wall Street Money Never Sleeps premiere hosted by Peggy Siegel. I really believe that so many people and a lot of them were women are the reason that Jeffrey Epstein could exist for so long and abuse so many people. He did so many um, like, you know, socialites like Eva Dubin and, um, you know, even even that reporter, uh, Vicki Ward, yeah. um, you know, she was one of the first people to really be on to Jeffrey Epstein. Right. Like she knew about um, she knew about what happened to Maria Farmer and her sister, Annie Farmer. She convinced them to tell their story, despite how scared they were. You know, these are some girls from like the middle of nowhere who were um, attacked by Ghislaine and, and Epstein. And they finally agreed after a year and they told or not a year, but a few months. And they told um, Vicki Ward their story. Vicky said, I promise I'll, I'll, I'll protect you. And then, you know, for some reason or other pressure, I'm sure on, um, Graydon Carter, they didn't run the story. They didn't run that part of the story. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and that was heartbreaking for those girls, you know, because not now Ghislaine and Epstein know that they're talking, but nothing is happening. Right. There's no law enforcement. The FBI ignores them. There's no press. They're just in the wilderness now with these very powerful people marked them as enemies. Um, marking them as enemies. They've actually moved away from New York because of it. Wow. Um, and I read a blog post from Vicki Ward from like 2012 or 2014 or something saying that they are the most, that, that she never cared about Epstein's sexual picadillos and that she's always more interested in his wealth and that Ghislaine, she'd been up all night with Ghislaine drinking and she's the most interesting person in the room with the best stories. And in New York, we, we, we don't care about those sort of blemishes, meaning what's going on. Money hides those sort of blemishes. Those are her exact words. And I was just like, I read that again and it gave me the chills. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and now, you know, Vicki Ward also does stories. Uh, I don't know that she has any podcasts or anything, but like, you know, she's kind of known as a, a source on Jeffrey Epstein. She was in the, um, she was in the, the Netflix documentary. Um, but it's just like, if even journalists like will turn a blind eye to this story and just be friends with you, like you don't have to cover it. People might say, Oh, it's not, it's not a wall street journal story. It's not, it, it was certainly a New York post story and we hit on it, but right. it just sometimes the, the way that Julie did it, Julie was the executive producer of my, um, of one of the shows, yeah, Julie um, Brown from the, yeah. Julie K yeah. Brown, who, who, uh, broke the story on Epstein that actually brought it back into the here. Can I just tell you what the word are? Cause I just found it. Yeah. Um, this is what, uh, Vicki Ward said. She's, she called Maxwell always the most interesting, the most vivacious, the most unusual person in any room. I spent hours talking to her about the third world at a bar until 2 a.m. She's as passionate as she is knowledgeable. She's curious. That was in 2011, okay? So this is after Epstein has been um, arrested. Yeah, she well, said, so, so just, just to clarify also on the timing, he not only arrested, pled guilty to child prostitution, soliciting a, prostitu yeah. a child prostitute went to jail or sort of jail, I guess, work release, and now got out. <laughs> that's, exactly. That's the context And so it. she says in the same blog post, in this, the, the, she said, in this city, talking about Epstein, she said, I never cared about his sexual picadillos. Those are her words. She said, instead, in this city, money makes up for all sorts of blemishes. I mean, like, 
if that doesn't tell you everything, like this is someone who knew about what he did and wanted to report it. Yeah. And like years later, it's just like that tells you everything, right? Julie is an amazing reporter. Um, you know, uh, my executive producer of my show, um, Adam McKay, bought the rights to her book and he's doing um, an HBO show based on the book. Um, right. And I've worked with some of their, uh, the writer of the pl- of the show and like a few others, just not like worked with them, but you know, they know that I, their that team is the executive producer of my show as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about this, but like, it wasn't a lot of people knew about Jeffrey Epstein. He was out there. The daily beast had been covering him, but Julie like struck at the right moment. Right. She got Acosta, the labor secretary, giving a sweetheart deal to a sex offender. And she got the girls to talk on the record for the first time. That was extremely powerful. Like those were the, and you have the coming off of the Me Too movement. It was those three things. Before the Me Too movement, people really didn't care about stories of girls getting abused. Yeah. I I, I wonder if the story would, and and what, for the Me Too movement, did that come to some degree out of Trump winning in 2016? You know, I don't know, obviously Weinstein, it's sort of this, this dominoes fell, which, you know, did a lot of good in the, in the sense of that. I mean, you, you talk about like the lack of coverage of it. I mean, I, I think Project Veritas does some shady shit. Um, but one of the things that I think they were right on about w- was what they, they, the Amy Robach video, uh, um, oh, yeah. where, you know, she basically says I had the Jeffrey Epstein story years before and it was killed for one reason or another by ABC. Um, so, yeah. you know, it was, it was beyond that. I mean, you know, and these you would think are the kinds of stories that a major network would like to cover, but obviously we saw it with NBC, with Harvey Weinstein, mm-hmm. one reason or another, these things seem to get killed. It's because if you actually have money, you can hire someone like Alan Dershowitz, who can hire someone who knows somebody who knows somebody. It's just like the, the stories about power, which I'm obsessed with, uh, are hard. Yeah. You know, because you've got power up against you when you're trying to break these stories. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's just crazy how long it, it just never got the right treatment. You know what I mean? Like that, the story was out there. It just never got the right treatment. It never got the right time and it never got the right hook. Yeah. Uh, I knew about Jeffrey Epstein being a creep from 2010 when I worked at page six, you know, like I didn't know all of it, but I, if I saw him at a party, I was like, this guy's a creep. Right. I know. You know what I'm saying? Like, what's he doing here? Um, but I, I have worked so closely with Virginia Roberts. I know she was heartbroken over what happened at ABC because she was the uh, she was the victim who sat down with Amy Robach. She really liked Amy a lot yeah. and told her her story. But Virginia's story is a crazy story. And I'm going to tell you, we I have the same fact checkers that um, they use at the New Yorker on some of Har- uh, on some of the Harvey Weinstein pieces. And um, you know, Adam Davidson is was uh, was my editor at one point from the New Yorker and. Like we are extremely thorough. We had to fact check all of that. We had lawyers. It's a real, it's a slog. Like it's not easy to do that story. It took so long, mainly due to the fact checking. And we wanted to break news and we did break a lot of news, you know, but it, it just, it's, it's not an easy story. Right. That's the problem. And yeah. so many people that you're going to have to deal with so many interested parties. Um, a lot of people with power and money who just don't want you to cover this story. So that to me makes it all the more fulfilling. And I'm really thankful that Sony wants to go to those places that frankly, a lot of mainstream media doesn't care to go to right now. And I said, I'm like, I want this to be a newsworthy podcast. I want to break news. I want to do it in a different angle. And I want it to be about the survivors. Cause I felt like 
it had become a story about like, it had become a wealth porn story about, you know, this mysterious Mr. Epstein and how he had all this money and he was able to get away with all of this because he had friends with power. And these girls were just kind of like ancillary products of this. Like, you know, yeah. they weren't. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? When like, it was covered at all. Yeah. When it was covered at all, yeah, that was, exactly. the, that was the angle. Yeah. Well, uh, last thing on, on Epstein, because, uh, in an interview with, uh, Marie Claire about the, the podcast, uh, broken seeking justice, you talked about your own, uh, sexual assault that, that led to, you know, that, that maybe, maybe informed some of your, your coverage of this. And I, I wonder how it was specifically, you know, shining a light on the victims in the Epstein story. Um, given that experience that you had. You know, it actually, it motivated me to want to do um, the podcast. You know, it was that thing. Because, like, okay, listen, you agree to do a Jeffrey Epstein story for nine months of your life. That's a hard thing yeah. to sit with. It's, it's so painful. It These stories are excruciating. These are girls that were, you know, 14, 15, 13, braces on their teeth, molested by an adult man. It is heavy shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I remember I had gone after I left ABC, I had gone on some sort of like, uh, eh, eat, pray, love thing. I just like, you know, I just wanted to take some time off and I went into the, where did I go? Oh, Joshua tree. Yeah. And I start walk, hiking around and I'm just thinking about like life in general. And I, you know, I talked to my agent about this Jeffrey Epstein project. They wanted a, an investigative reporter. And I was just like, you know, I really got to do this story. Like this is important to me. This is a story. It's not being told the right way. It needs to be about the victims. Um, it reminded me of what had happened to me. I said that to Adam Davidson and Laura Mayer, the executive producer and the, and the head of a podcast at Sony. I was like, I get it. I was the same age as them. I know what it's like to feel powerless, to feel like the authorities aren't going to help you, to feel like um, your world is over. You don't know what the consequences will be. You know, these aren't like, like I, I, those were the worst years of my life. And I remember never hearing of, uh, of a rape survivor who was strong and powerful and had moved on with their lives in a way that they made, you know, that they, that they had survived because we just never talked about it. So right. in my mind as a 16 year old, I only imagined that my life would end in some sort of like loony bin or, you know, in some sort of support group. And I would never be able to, I was just a victim. Like if I had ever uttered it, I would always be forever a victim. Like they didn't use the word survivor then. You know what I mean? I just thought like it would have been so helpful at that point in my life if we had talked about these things. You know what I mean? If there wasn't that kind of shame, um, if there wasn't, if there were, if there was a way of, of talking about, um, like who knows, things would have been different. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I even said that the police came to me at the time and I still, I didn't tell them anything, you know? And right. I, I wonder like if, if the narrative was different, would I have done the thing that anybody, any normal rational person would have done? But like, we just didn't talk about it. You know, there was so much shame associated with these kind of crimes. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, you know, if anything, yeah. I, I wonder if the work, uh, you know, your work and, and Julie Brown and Jody Cantor and Ronan Farrow and Megan Kelly with, with Tara Reid. I mean, you know, there's been some really great work over these last couple of years. I feel like that, that, you know, hopefully has shifted that to some degree for a lot of people. I just um, think we need people out. I think as long as we keep these stories as long as we, we, we like show the humanity of these victims as we show them with some strength and some power. And like, that's what this whole show is about them seeking justice, them taking back, you know, the power that they have inside of them. Like not just waiting around, like they were getting so frustrated waiting for Ghislaine Maxwell to get arrested for a full year, you know? And so one of the girls went out and found her recruiter, 
found the girl who brought her to Jeffrey Epstein and assaulted her with Jeffrey Epstein. Wow. Um, you know, another one has been fighting the government for the for violating the Crime Victims' Rights Act by by giving Jeffrey Epstein and all of his accomplices this uh, non-prosecution agreement. You know, with Virginia, I went and knocked on people's doors of witnesses who were there, the chefs, the butlers, the doormen, you know, like the, the pilots. We were like, hey, I'm Virginia. She's like, I'm Virginia. Please help me. You know what I mean? Jeez. Like, it's just like, these people felt, I don't know, it was, it was a, it was so, it was hard. Like I was so exhausted doing it, but I don't know, hopefully, hopefully it means something to some people. And, um, and if it doesn't, that's fine. It, it, it was good for me. No. Um, I know that's a little selfish too. Like as a journalist, like I said that in the Mary Claire piece, like it's never really supposed to be about you, but it, it, it felt like it. And sometimes, and maybe yeah. that was the only way that it got me through it. Cause it, like, I wrote a the podcast in the middle of COVID by myself with my dog. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it was a dark time to be focused on Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. Well, it was, it was fantastic <laughs> journalism. I mean, it, and, uh, and, and, uh, and now, uh, to shift gears real quick before our last thing is, uh, you've got another new gig starting up, uh, writing Politico playbook. Uh, tell me about going back to Politico and, uh, and, and your work that's about to get started there. Yeah, I'm so excited to go back to Politico. I really am. It always felt like a home for me. Um, it just to that experience of launching Politico Europe has just always been like one of my favorite professional experiences. And I, I really just, I really respect Carrie Budoff Brown, Matt Kaminsky, um, and you know, and I feel like they're part of my family, John Harris, um, and I'm just really pumped to come back and and to bring a bit of that maybe that page six step to Washington a little bit, you know, like have a little mischief, have some fun. Um, these years have been dark with Trump, right? Like it's been a dark time. It's hard to be light when you've got kids in cages and insurrection on the Capitol. So hopefully like we can show the town of Washington in the absurdities that we all see all the time. You know what I mean? And maybe, you know, a little bit of the juicy like stories about who's up to what the power plays just kind of make it a bit, of a, like a human product that feels like it's living and it's kind of like stepping into a parlor room in Washington and we're going to give you all the, the well, I think the timing couldn't be better because, you know, if, if there was a, if, if, if the journalists were on the edge of their seat, you know, busting their ass through the last four years, I, I feel like there's going to be a bit of a, uh, a, a lull, uh, maybe a, a leaning back and, uh, and, and, uh, <laughs> I'm glad you're going to be there to, uh, to stir shit up still. All right. Yeah, but, thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah. All right. Last thing. Uh, six questions real quick here. Lightning round. Where were you born? I was born in New York City, uh, Lenox Hill Hospital, but I grew up in New Jersey. I'm a Jersey girl. All right. <laughs> me, uh, you're now writing Political Playbook. You've got your investigative podcast series. What's one benefit and one cost of that role? The playbook, I'm just going to have to wake up really early, but I'm an early riser. So it's, I'm like freakishly early riser from television. Frankly, I never shook it. I always, I still now wake up at five in the morning, believe that e even though I only was on ABC for about like two and a half years, I still wake up at eight, five o'clock in the morning. So that'll work for playbook, right? right. Um, I just think my life is going to be taken over by politics. It'll be hard to take a break from it. It's a really intense thing to write a newsletter every single day. Um, but, you know, um, I'll just be giving up a piece of my life, but I miss being in the game and in, in the political game. So it'll be good to be back. Yeah. Um, and, and, and with like, and with people that get me and appreciate what I'm doing, um, and the podcasts, I mean, they're going to be more podcasts. So 
uh, that's not going away either. I definitely always see myself in the podcast documentary space for the rest of my career. Like it just feels like between having to write like quick, you know, hits in a, in a newsletter or a daily news story, and then getting that opportunity to really like marinate into a story is like kind of a lovely thing to have that combo. Yeah. That's great. Who's someone who's been a mentor for you? Hmm. That's a good question. You know, when I was a gossip columnist, um, Lloyd Grove was really helpful. Um, you know, he gave me a lot of great advice when I was writing for the Washington Examiner, you know, always kind of telling me to like, go for the kill, you know, don't <laughs> never shy away from the scoop, make calls. You know, he, he was kind of like shoe leather reporter because he was a, a little bit, he was a legend at the reliable source in Washington, right? Yeah. Um, so he was, he was great. Uh, definitely a mentor. Uh, Michelle Gotthelf, um, at the New York post, she really took me under her wing. Um, I feel like all reporters at some point in their career feel a little lost at sea, right? Like maybe they're not on the right beat or they don't have the right editor who sees the right things in them. And she, she sort of saved me from being lost at sea and, and really helped bring out the best in me and taught me how to be a scoop artist, you know, always believed in me, sent me on the road everywhere. Once to try to find a cannibal cop's wife and the other time to, um, you know, find a fugitive in Cuba. And she just like always, always believed in me and taught me a lot about, uh, like, you know, she'd be like, this is boring snooze, move on. You know, like she was just keeping it real yeah. all the time. And I, I respect that. Nice. Um, and then uh, Carrie, Carrie Budoff Brown. I mean, she's always believed in me too. And she's taught me so much and she's kind of pushed me to want to be better. And I think most recently in the podcasting world, I've learned so much from Adam Davidson. So right. yeah, who is, at every stage, there's yeah, a mentor. That's <laughs> Who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? Hmm. Who is someone I really like personally or prof professionally that might surprise people? Hmm. I, I don't know if I, I don't know that I would be surprising for anyone. I don't know that I'm in a box of conservative or, or Democrat, you know, cause I'm sort of, I've worked at the New York post and I've worked at Politico and ABC, you know, yeah. I'm a journalist. How about one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? Hmm. Interesting or talented. I love like I, I, I already she's already a star, but like I just love Olivia Nuzzi's uh, reports from Washington and just like the yeah. the craziness of it all. Um, you know, she's a great writer. I, I mean, she's told me before, like I report to write, right? Um, I sorry, yeah. So she reports to write. Right. Um, I write to report. We're completely opposite, right? Mm. And I have, as a journalist, always worked on my writing, and I've gotten better at it, and I feel more comfortable with it. But like, I just love how, like, I just love the way she tells stories. I think the way she writes, she just like, she finds the, the lunacy, the hypocrisy. Um, and I don't think she like lays into it in a way that's like with outrage. It's kind of just like, look at this, like, I'm going to like, let you step into the spectacle of it all. Right. Um, I just think she's absolutely amazing. I wish she was on the playbook team with us. Yeah, <laughs> she's, she's be, uh... She would never wake up for it though. Right. Um, I think she'll be, yeah, think she'll be good great. in the, uh, in the next era also, uh, next, yeah. next have like a bunch of new, like great scoop artists out there. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh sorry. Last, yeah. last one, one year from today, what's one prediction for the media? God, you ask really good questions. Um, I'm not used to being on the other side of it either. <laughs> um, let's see one prediction. I fear that it will go back to sheep mentality and I'll get a little lazy. Me too. Well, we've got you there. So 
Thanks, Tara. <laughs> this is great. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, this is really fun. All right. Talk soon. Talk soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks to Tara Palmieri. Remember, Fourth Watch, not just a podcast, also a newsletter. You can go to fourthwatch.media. Subscribe for free. Comes out three times a week. Love to have you. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music for the show as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. This song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And download this podcast as well. Subscribe, follow, like, wherever you get your podcast. This was produced at Full Circle Studios in Addison, Texas. Join me for the next episode with my friend Piers Morgan. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.